problem for all of us, or at least most of us, when you were born, when we were born, the doctor cried out, what? It's a boy, right? Or the doctor cried out, it's a girl. And the parents were, ah! And they're just all stoked. Remember that? Maybe you don't remember that, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> then they wrap the boys in blue, right? And then they wrap the girls in pink, and they gave them like little hipster beanies and little pink blankets. Remember that? And they put them in those little like weird dolly things. You guys remember? That's how it is in the movies, right? See, what if I told you, though, that a hundred years ago, girls were wrapped in blue and boys were wrapped in pink? Little boys would have been wrapped or would have, been, would have had long hair until about the age seven or eight or, or worn, worn dresses. Remember those, remember those pictures of all the family members that didn't smile and like sepia and they put them in all the horror movies? Remember those? Back then. And they would have believed that like, the light color blue was more delicate and dainty. So they would have given it to girls, and red, pink would have been more powerful, more arresting. Give that to the boys. You see, the, the shift in colors was established in the 1940s. Then the world changed in the 1980s with science and black magic, and somehow we could start telling the gender of babies before they were born. People could start freaking out and go, oh, I know what it is now. Not its personality, or not the baby's career path, or not the baby's likes or dislikes. We knew before they were born, this child is going to be male or female. And from there, you had two color options, right? Two color options. A marketing person's dream. Babies are us went nuts. What are the two colors of baby are, babies are us? Blue and pink, right? You walk down the aisle, it's like blue and pink. It's vomited all over all of the walls. The entire human race compacted down into two colors. The entire human race compacted down into two colors. Unless you didn't want to know the gender of your baby, then everybody buys yellow. Yes, yellow. But for the most part, the entire human race divided into two colors, and the larger part of gender dividing realms of thinking based upon male or female. Male being flannel, spitting everywhere, red meat, brawny, hairy, Tim Allen types. Remember? Remember Home, Home Improvement? Wasn't that what that was called? <laughs> Remember that show? <laughs> and then you have women, subdued, apron-wearing, timid, little house on the prairie princesses. Both stupid. Both are completely stupid. Now, do you have any idea, for the last 12 years that I've been married how much fun I've been made fun of, how much grief I get that all the tools in our house belong to my wife. <laughs> Every tool. She is the Fritz household handyman, or handy woman, see? She is the Fritz household handy woman. Now, she knows where every, like, I couldn't even, I was trying to think, I'm trying to think of a tool in this, a screw head hammer, or a monkey ratchet. She knows where all of them are and how to use them, and they have, guess what they have, little pink handles on See, Babies R Us does it again. Now, here's how crazy awesome my wife is. Six months pregnant, six months pregnant, okay? I drive home one day, and I pull into the driveway, and as I'm pulling up, this is back in Arizona, I look over to our window, and I see this giant, huge roll of old carpet get thrown out the window. And I come into the house after a long day's work, and there is my wife, and she has replaced all of the carpet in the, in the entire house, six months pregnant, with a steak knife and liquid nail. No joke. I didn't say she was a good handyman. I just said she was a handyman. 
the carpet stayed. It was amazing. But I love that our kids know that in our household, if, like, if you need like a spaghetti jar opened, go to mommy. Like, if you need a craft or, like, daddy to bedazzle something, you know, go to, go to me. All the craft supplies in the house, I know exactly where they're at. And I sit there and I draw with the kids, and Emily's outside with, like, a grill saw. Is that even a, a drill saw? I don't even know. I don't know what it, is that a thing, Case? No, all right. Whatever. I could bedazzle the crap out of you guys' jean jackets, though. Okay. But I bet some here, but I bet for some here, uh, hearing even just that little stupid stories, maybe that even rocks the boat of some of our, some of your presuppositions when it comes to gender. And throughout the last few decades, all aspects, all aspects of gender and their presuppositions are changing. And, f- and very, very fast, I might add. You see, biological sex and psychological sex are dividing. Let me repeat that. Biological sex and psychological sex are dividing at an alarming rate. They are no longer considered the same thing. And it's even now, in 2017, in Los Angeles, becoming a celebration. Thus, cultural expectations of masculinity and femininity, or how I feel or how I'm made, are no longer congruent. You see, the topic of gender in our day, it's, it's a sandcastle of sorts with an ever-changing tide. What is here now uh, will probably be gone tomorrow. Um, I try to read as many books as possible, both secular and Christian and theological. Um, and I tell you what, if a book was three years old, it was completely out of date. I, there was many books I just had to keep doing this to, going, this, is, this will not work, this does not make sense. And every new author would undo what the last author did even three years ago. So then, with all of that, what is foundational? What is foundational that we must know? How do we navigate the shifting sands of gender, especially as a church? Especially as a church. And I ask that, and hear me asking that, not as a therapist or a biologist or a physician or a professor, Okay, I can't get into night, you know, puberty suppressors or hormone pills or, ther- or uh, surgery. I, I, I can't get into that. Now, I do not claim to have all the answers, but I do hope that you hear me fully tonight um, as we collectively seek to have a biblical understanding of gender. And again, I, I'm only going to stress that this topic is huge. I can't even cover a small percentage of it. This this topic is massive. But Christians especially, uh, what must we understand? What must we understand in order to wisely engage? Because I would not be surprised if anybody here had a friend or a loved one or a coworker or a neighbor who is understanding that no longer does their biological sex and their psychological sex have alignment. So, what we're about to go over tonight as a church so that we can compassionately interact is extremely important, especially in this city. And so that the men and women in the circles you run with, um, again, I'm not going to be surprised that, that if there are gender incongruences, that also means that there's probably hurting. That also means that there's probably deep isolation. And those two components lead one to the gates of depression and anxiety. 
So what I want all of us to get is here's the thing, but we might not know personally, we might not understand personally what gender incongruences are for us or what they do to one's life. We all know what it feels like to be alone. We all know what it feels like to be filled with anxiety, to be afraid. And most people whose psychological um, gender and biological gender who don't line up, that is what they are feeling. So what I'd like us to get away from tonight is just how, you know, if we've come, just how do we win this cultural war? And I want every inch of us tonight to be understanding, to be understanding this, this massive conversation with deep compassion. So if our engagement ever morphs into, um, or if you even hear me tonight, but please don't, but if, 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 if devaluing a person, then we've misread the words of Genesis that we're just about to read or the words of Jesus or the gospel entirely. So it's important that we have a healthy understanding of this conversation. And from my research, that what we must understand that's foundational to wisely engage, from my research, it seems that it's really a five-sided shape. A, a polygon, if you will, in understanding gender. So I'm going to read these off to you if you want to write them down, cool. But these are important to know if we are going to, to have a deeper compassion as we uh, understand this issue. So number one. There is biological sex. Number one is biological sex. This is the polygon of understanding gender. This is male and female chromosomes, gonads, hormones, and the real inner working that uh, the real inner workings of our distinct humanity. So again, that's biological sex, chromosomes, both male and female gonads, hormones. Two. There is primary sex characteristics. This is male and female genitalia and reproductive systems. This now, in our day, can be changed. That is primary sex characteristics. Three, there is secondary sex characteristics. This is muscle mass, facial hair, breast, and all those type of things, and they too now can be changed. Four, this is important, this is a huge one, but this is what, what even, you know, just National Geo, Geo just did a whole thing with Katie Couric. I don't know if anybody saw it, this whole thing. Um, this was a huge one that they were trying to make sure everybody understood, and this is gender expression. This is the social and cultural aspects of what it means to be male and female. Blue or pink, that's basically. Tim Allen or princesses. Right? So that's gender expression. And then five, and this is huge, and we must come to know this term if you don't already, there is gender identity. Five is gender identity. This is how each of us experience ourselves as either male or female. Gender identity is the great pain point for people. The clash of body and brain in that realm brings what's called gender dysphoria. It's called gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is a very real experience in individual faces. There might be some in this room right now struggling with gender dysphoria, either Christian or unchristian. That is a very clinical term. Uh, Christians have not come up with that term. That is a well-accepted term, gender dysphoria. 
To have gender dysphoria means that one sees themselves as emotionally and mentally opposite of their biological sex. There is an incongruence. There is severe discomfort, and there is very, very real pain. And for those who are in a gender dysphoria tornado, this is very, very confusing from them, even all the way from when they were a child. I saw this firsthand. Um, you know, I had, I had the opportunity last week to share with you guys the sort of the testimony of the life of my gay brother and our relationship. But what I didn't have a chance to tell you is in the last six months to a year, he has been very, very, very confused. And he would even admit that it's been a lot to process because he would say as of now there is a disconnect with what he feels his gender from birth and his gender identity is. He has gone from male to gender fluid. If you're not familiar with that term, that was where a person sees their identity as not fixed to either male or female. And he has asked everybody who comes in contact with him that you refer to him as plural. So if we were going to say, when is my brother coming over, you would actually have to say, when are they coming over? To now, he is in the beginning steps and has been called what's called transitioning from male to female. And I don't know if that will be it for him, for my brother. I don't know what will satisfy my brother, who is now identifying as my sister. But friends, this is the truth of our age. A person identifies as whatever they feel themselves to be. We've come to the age where gender is self-determined. I'm reminded of the words from John Stuart Mill. He's basically the founding father of modern you know, Western liberalism. He says, over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. The individual is sovereign. And when you or I are sovereign and we see all of life as ours to determine, then everything, church and relationships, is, is only if we're in the mood for it. Sex is about orgasms. Fetuses are about organisms, right? Marriage is temporary and our bodies can just easily be changed. Now, this is a pastor's observation. Please don't hear some Christian guy up here just ranting. These are social, secular facts. If you didn't know already, we are in a gender revolution. A gender revolution. And the church is so just trying to keep up. The church is trying to keep up. Times Magazine a while back has stated that gender, especially the topic of transgender, is the next big civil rights frontier. It's a very famous line. You probably have all read it or at least heard about it. We are in a gender revolution. We already know this revolution has started on Facebook, right, with gender identification. I'm not on Facebook, by the grace of God, but it's allowing users to customize their gender from male to female to now other. Again, I'm not on it, but it's been told it has somewhere upwards of 70 options. 70 options, including by gender, transgender, all the way now to the slot that you can customize. You can customize it. Is that not the sovereign individual? They will allow a person to convey whatever they feel, whatever their authentic self to be, even if that's beyond gender. 
which makes us ask, does gender even matter anymore in a gender revolution? Judith Warbur, a radical feminist, says this, when we no longer ask boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant, when the information is as, as irrelevant as the color of a child's eyes, you see that you in there? Yeah, she's English. As the color of a child's eyes, only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. And when that happens, there will be no longer any need for gender at all. Now, I'm all about gender equality, and so are the scriptures. But is the dissolving of gender the goal? Is the dissolving of gender the point? Simply, does gender matter? There's so much controversy over that question alone. And when there's controversy in our feelings and how we feel as one another in a community and in a city, where there are sandcastles of thoughts in an ever-changing world, is there something to cling to? What many people would just say, is there a normative? Well, for Christians, we believe that's the Bible. We believe that's the Bible. The Bible is a solid ground beneath our feet in a, geez, a culture of bewilderment and customizable identities, right? And don't freak out. I mean, we're at a church gathering. You knew I was going to talk about the Bible. The Bible, he's a scoundrel. So here we go. Let's be honest. Actually, before we get in, let's be honest. This is deeply confusing and a stressful, a stressful reality for all. Not just Christians who are trying to, to engage compassionately. This is a stressful reality, reality for all. And everybody is gripping for some sort of unmovable truth. Everybody. So to find solid grounds isn't just a consideration for Christians. This is a consideration for every person here. So I want to read Genesis. We've been flirting with Genesis 1 and 2 throughout this entire sexualized series, probably hitting a different component of it every time. Every week, I believe, we've talked about Genesis. But now remember, as we look at it for the last time in this series, whatever is referenced to in the New Testament, even the Old, back in Genesis 1 or 2, is to be understood as God's divine design for humanity and nature. Basically, this is how God wants it. Let's start in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on this earth. I really want us to start tonight in Genesis because I want us to behold distinction. I've been saving Genesis ultimately to the end, knowing we're going to talk about gender, because I really, really, really wanted it to be about distinction. God orders the very universe by distinctions. All of Genesis 1 reveals that God brings order by separating. Think about it. God separated the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea, right? Moon and sun, the fish and birds. And in his masterpiece, God created and distinguished male and female. Distinction. Dividing the human race into two genders. 
showing us that this is not some weird invention for like prudes or patriarchs. Gender is and will always be God's idea. Look at this. All the living stock, all the living, the living creatures, excuse me, excuse me, God is divided into groups, right? Is that what we just read? In verse 26, it talks about livestock as the groups, and it talks about the creatures that move along the ground. It talks at other places about wild animals. But humankind is distinguished as male and female. Look at verse 27 again. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Not as German or Irish or rich or pro or, or rich or poor or, or Trojan or Bruin, whatever, but male and female. This is how the Creator has ordered the world. This is how God wants it. Even those with gender dysphoria who follow Christ, even transgender Christians would look at this and go, yeah, this is nothing new. What are you saying, Casey? Disagreements arise when I start to say this, that with our Creator creating, our gender then isn't a lottery. Our gender then isn't a mistake. Our gender then isn't an afterthought. You and I designed with maleness and femaleness means more than we'll probably ever fully come to know. In John Salemhammer's brilliant Genesis commentary, he writes, The author of Genesis has not considered gender to be an important feature to stress in his account of the creation of the other forms of life. But for humankind, it is of some importance. Thus, the narrative stresses that God created humankind as male and female. Genesis stresses the importance of given gender. This is biblical. Each day of creation, in its origin, is complementing or complementary pairs. This is to bring for God this beauty and order. This is how he brings up beauty and order. But even so, more, that much more with humanity. Male and female were made in the image of God of God. Nothing else in creation bears that image. I think probably Christians, churches are over this whole image of God thing, meaning it's, it's old hat. It's totally old hat. We've heard it a million times. There's probably some sort of Hebrew tattoos floating around in here where somebody has the image of God written on them, right? I think people maybe have left the gravity and gratitude and importance and crucial nature of what it means to be made in God's image. The Christian view of our sexes is a reflection in the nature of God. And not merely distinction for the purpose of procreation. That is a massive argument. Know that from, from people on, on the side who would say that gender doesn't matter. They would say that gender is just about procreation. And we see here that is absolutely not just the case. Yes, it's important for procreation. But it's male and female image bearers together, which brings wholeness. So just as man was made in the image of God, so is female. So hear me. That means we do not get a full understanding of God unless both genders have been established. But just so it's said and known, I just want this to be put out there for everybody for public record. To be made in the image of God is a reality that's bestowed upon all. Meaning, yes, male and female, but also that means gay, straight, transgender, transsexual, all humanity are the image bearers of God. Essentially, this is who we are from creation. Male and female separate from one another 
are only half. They only become half. And thus they are half representing from God. If we just had men on this earth, God help us if that ever came that way. That would be horrible. If we just had men on this earth, we're only half representing God. If we just had women on this earth, we'd be flourishing and doing incredible things. God bless you, women. Society would be better. But at the same time, it would only be halfway representing God. God is both masculine and feminine. It took two of us, man and female, male and female, to represent the glory of God. So when male and female come together for sex, you know, within the marriage union, or when men and female, or male and female come together in community, or when male and female come together in fellowship or relating to one another, this is a representation of something brilliant and beautiful and cosmic. Gender matters. You guys remember Dale Keene? He did the lecture and he kicked off our series on sexuality. He says this. Not only are we relational beings who cannot find wholeness without relating to God and one another, but we also are gendered beings. And we cannot be whole without relating with the other gender. Men and women require the other gender for relational wholeness. I actually like a lot what Dorothy Sayers suggests. She says we should probably knock off this whole opposite sex thing and we should start calling each other neighboring sexes. I'm into it. Let's start it. Let's do it. I like it because what it does, it makes this puzzle-shaped need for the other neighboring sex. Now, I want us to notice, did you notice that the design of gender and the establishment of male and female comes prior to the establishment of marriage? Did you notice that? Marriage shows up in Genesis 2, but right now we see the complementing of sexes as a reflection of God's image. So that's showing us with this that gender is more than sex. Gender is more than sex. We covered this a lot in our first week. Gender is more than sex. Gender is more than genitals, right? Gender is more than just baby making. Again, that's important or none of us would be here. But it's not all about that. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that God's plans for humanity were merely just male and femaleness. Another problem that the church has is not making a big enough idea of gender and then at the same time making way too big of a deal of gender. There's far more to our existence than just gender. But to be fearfully and wonderfully designed, made, and created as male and female is deeper than biological and psychological sex. And it's here where the heat gets turned up in any talk or sermon or conversation. This is where I make enemies in my email inbox is in all caps and a lot of red letters and all those type of things. Especially with those who define gender differently. But to interpret Genesis is to view the Christian vision for identity as set. Unchangeable. Thus, we can alter one's body through surgery by removing or adding biological characteristics. But I believe the Bible reveals in Genesis and elsewhere that God purposely and fearfully and wonderfully determines our gender beyond genitals. God determines our gender. Thus, our identities given at creation transcend how we feel. 
They transcend even if there's something that we change about us because there is a heavy spiritual dimension to our gender. That's what we've been trying to unpack for five weeks. So Genesis shows us that who we are is discovered, not determined. What Genesis and all of Scripture shows us that who we are is received, not defined and not directed by us, by what the father of liberalism would call us as sovereign individuals. I can only assume at this moment I'm just pissing people off maybe, or, you know, call me a bigot or sexist or whatever. Because today, in this moment, I am breaking the number one societal rule. That rule being that all of life must resonate with how we feel. That is the golden rule of Los Angeles. How we feel is it. So much so that we make the body change rather than the changing of our brain. Because there's no way we could possibly have a wrong thought. Life is subdued. Existence is subdued. Our body is subdued under our feelings. They have to submit. Again, this is culture's golden rule. And if we think that this applies only to gender, oh yeah, yeah, to them, no, we are sorely mistaken. This sovereign individuality casts a shadow upon all people, sexuality, power, ambition, vocation, purpose, and relationships. Modern-day self-authenticity pushes us to create our own beliefs and morality based on how we feel. That no matter what, you have to be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. This is the mantra of our day, right? Brilliant philosopher Charles Taylor says that this it means we're in the age of authenticity. If I could put a Casey Fritz spin on that, that would just mean you do you. You do you, dude. You do you. I feel this way. Cool, you do you. Jonathan Grant commenting on the climate of our culture in his book, Divine Sex, and he's sort of being you know, antagonistic with this, but he's showing the devil's advocate side. He says, the worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside by society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with a -a one-of-a-kind personality. If this is the climate of our culture, it should be obvious then how the society golden rule that impacts the way we view everything from government to gender but listen to this. This is how um, liberal feminist, another one, uh, says it. I don't remember her name off the top of my head. It's probably up there. But she says, um, I consider me neither gay nor straight, neither male or female, neither human being nor animal. Sovereign individual. Sovereign individualism. So as the world goes from one identity to another, to another, to another, from male to female to gay to straight to human to animal to none of it, every being is just trying to answer the most pervasive question, the most pervasive fundamental question of life. All that, that's all that means. All she's trying to do is answer the most pervasive fundamental question of life. 
Every trans, uh, transgender individual we run across is trying to answer the most pervasive, fundamental question one could ask. That being, who am I? Right? That's, what all, we, that's all we want to know, right? Who am I? My heart shatters, absolutely shatters, to hear that USA Today reports that 41% of transgender people uh, try to kill themselves. At some point in their life, at some point, hearing that, my mind and my heart races to my brother who was devastatingly seeking to answer, who am I? Be curious of who your mind races towards. And for those who deal with gender dysphoria, the journey of trying to discover yourself while trying to be accepted is like oil and water. I don't even know who I am. That's who my community is. That is a hard road. You know why the trans community try to take their life, at least 41% of them? According to the USA Today, they commented saying, it's all because of acceptance. It's all because of acceptance. Because they feel of lesser value. Because they feel, those with gender dysphoria, that they have no worth or place because they are in a state of limbo. I may not be able to relate to gender incongruence, but I can relate a whole lot to having a horrible self-worth image. I know what that feels like. Friends, do you know what the image of God means? When Genesis 1 says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created him. This means so much, I mean, it means so much. The Imago Dei means so much. But ultimately, it means that you and I have worth. And so we don't hear 41% of transgenders from USA Today killing themselves. What we read is 41% of image bearers taking their life because they feel they have no worth. So basically, we feel that there's people who have unbelievable worth and as they are made in the image of God taking their lives because they say, I have no worth. The image of God means our identity and the discovery of who we are in God begins with a resounding proclamation of you have value. You have value. Worth and value, not as you should be, not as a heterosexual, not if you're married, not if you dress like a boy, and not if you dress like a girl, not if you throw away your hormone pills, and not if you take hormone pills. Not if you become a Christian or you reject Christianity your entire life. Nonetheless, you have worth. Because in this moment, from the beginning of time to now, you are the image of God. And our worth comes from not what we make of ourselves. Isn't that what we're just all striving for? Isn't that 99% of everybody in Los Angeles? Let me make something of myself. Again, nobody's here by accident. <laughs> If you are, you want to spend $3,000 a month in rent by accident, you're crazy. <laughs> Nobody's here by accident. Our worth comes not from what we make of ourselves, but from realizing that the greatest form of acceptance exists only in Jesus Christ. 
This is the most pervasive, disruptive longing for completion. When I've talked with my brother, he would use that word complete and whole almost every other word. I want to be complete. I want to be whole. That has got to be the most exhausting longing that we as creatures will ever face. Here's what I mean. The first man and the first woman in the garden were tempted to become like God. Remember that? Christians, you remember that? If, if you're not, that's what it says. The Adam and Eve, you probably know the story, came to the tree. Satan tempted it. The serpent tempted to become like God. And they told them to become like these sovereign individuals. Yet rather than realizing they are made in the image of God, they sought to be like God. Abandoning the true God and setting out to define what is right and what is wrong and what is male and what is female. And this is me and this isn't me. Never, ever fully satisfied. So when we place the crowns on top of our heads, individual sovereignty, and we wear this badge, all we can do is look inward, right? Think about it. Think about this process. If we say, I am individually sovereign, and I am now like God, all we can do is look inward. And that's what breaks my heart with people with gender dysphoria. They're looking inward. Where else do we sovereign beings look when we intrinsically know that we determine reality? The Christian faith would rather say, rather than looking inward, you know, look upward. Look out for completion. You see, every craving to the answer of the question of who am I, our culture answers this with overly sexualized ways of who am I, the Bible would reveal that those languishes exist to find their completion in God. So how can we as creatures possibly know who we are? What image we bear? I mean, think about what what Voltaire said, right? If God has made man in his image, we have surely returned the favor. Sin has torn open this dissatisfaction black hole in our chest with who we are and with our worth. Again, my brother, I, I don't know whatever is going to satisfy him. I don't know how far he will go until he goes, until he feels complete. But again, what's stunning about the truth of Scripture and about the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus frees us not to become what we want, but to find the freedom and acceptance in who we are. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in no shame or form, am I suggesting this, that if you become a Christian, all dysphoria is washed away. Or that Jesus died on the cross to ensure that little girls wear pink and little boys wear blue. That is disgusting. Please don't walk away at all hearing that. That's gross. Jesus came, and he was born as a male, and he lived, and he taught, and he worked, and he loved, and he died, and he rose again to save and start a new community, a family. I say that because the Bible says this. Let me read these verses to you from the New Testament. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. And for you all are one in Christ Jesus. The Bible says if you put on Christ, then all cultural divisions are burned to the ground. No matter who you are, you find acceptance in the family of God. In the family of God, the church, functioning as it should, doesn't lead with, Jesus loves you, transgender, but the family of God, the church of Jesus, 
the bride of Christ does not lead with anybody to anybody with gender dysphoria that Jesus loves you if never remember what makes the saving gospel of Jesus Christ so scandalous and uncomfortable and offensive is it takes the, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, the haters and the lovers, it takes the good and the bad, it takes boys and girls, and it takes you and I, all of us, and it says if you can completely confess with your mouth and believe on your heart, you will be saved. You will have acceptance. Church, it means that we come alongside and care for those who are hurting, confused, homosexual, heterosexual, gender fluid, transitioning, and transgender. Even if they never receive Christ, it does not give us a ticket to stop loving them or caring for them or reaching out to them. Because the love of God has called us to transcend all transactions. I told you that last week my brother disbanded our relationship because I would not fully support him. I have tried heavily this week to reach out so that I can say this very stuff because all my heart wants to do is break and fall into a million pieces and give up. The love that transcends transactions. Even if my brother says, I never want to speak to you again or I hate you, that does not stop me from going, Jesus loves you, completion is in Christ, and I love you. I think it's important that we repeat what we talked about last week, that if we have this understanding that any amount of serving or caring for people who are not Christian, a transgender, or homosexual, any amount of serving or loving them is this fearful ad- uh, you know, affirmation, then we are sorely confused on the type of love that Christ has called us to give to those who are different or reject or whatever. I want the church to function as it should, and that means walking alongside of those who are radically rethinking gender, radically rethinking marriage. I want the church to have a prayer to engage wisely and compassionately, and I want it to start with prayer, including that prayer night that's coming up in a couple weeks. I want the church to operate as it should tonight. Tonight, we're going to pray for one another. I don't know if you guys have ever been around here and ever received prayer from anybody in our church, but we want to pray for people. You should want to be prayed for, even if you know somebody in your family who's going through this conversation, having these conversations. There's going to be people on that back wall, and there's going to be people on that back wall who want to pray for you. They're going to be wearing lanyards. Go to them. They're not going to interrogate you. They're just going to completely intercede for you. We believe in the power of prayer here. So tonight, let's operate as a church and seek out prayer from one another. And tonight, if anybody needs a fresh reminder of what universal brokenness looks like, especially in the body, we have to look towards communion. Communion is so prevalent right now as we talk about sexual brokenness. We talk about our body and how it's broken. The only answer to our experience of brokenness is found in the ultimate brokenness of Christ's body. So communion tonight is essential Come take the double stack cups, the drink, and the bread, and don't worry, it's gluten-free. It's why it tastes nasty. But come take communion and allow your brokenness of any kind to point you to the broken body of Christ and through his brokenness to the eventual restoration and healing that comes through him alone. Amen? Let's pray.